Welcome to Proof of Decentralization. I'm Chris Bleck, and what we try to do here is have candid, open, frank conversations with DeFi project team members. And the most important thing to understand about these conversations is that outcomes are never guaranteed to be positive. <laughs> they might not always be positive. They might sometimes be uncomfortable. They might sometimes be <laughs> negative. You know, it's just about being honest here. And that's what we're always trying to do. And we should be doing more of that in DeFi. Today, the topic is ThorChain. And I'm glad to be joined by uh, Chad Barriford, who's the your technical lead that I see for ThorChain. Yep. Yep. Dead on. One thing that before we get into, I do want to recap because we I did a chat with another member of the team from ThorChain, I think it was almost a year ago. Um, but so, I, but I still want to do a recap of what ThorChain is for everybody who is still catching up. But before we do that, mm-hmm. the ThorChain organization has always mystified me a little bit um, because it prides itself on anonymity and on um, decentralization. Uh, but then there's people like yourself who are like the technical lead. So um, is there is there like an official ThorChain organization or are you just technical lead by sort of, you know, it just sort I of mean, happened? There, there is no organization out there. There's no uh, corporation or foundation or anything like this. Uh, I think I'm the only one that's generally very public. Most people are on, the, on the team are, are anonymous uh, or pseudonymous is actually a more accurate term. Um, I think the important thing about being, um, having an anonymous team is, is to not have all well, the purpose behind it. At least one, one any other reason for me is to make sure you don't have any like Jesus like figures, uh, in the community. Right. And we, we, we don't want to have a, a, a figurehead that is like the CEO and the founder that, you know, is closely tied with the project and, you know, how that individual speaks or how you like or dislike that individual can affect how people perceive the value proposition of what the project actually trying to achieve. Right. And so I think um, for me, I'm out there just to, to describe this project to people who want to learn about it. There are other people within the community who are also doing the same thing, uh, who have the technical skill set and understanding of the protocol to do, to be able to do that. And I think for me, it's just like that, I am not any kind of, you know, figurehead. I am not the CEO of anything. I don't own it. I don't run it, you know, uh, you know, and there will be one day I will actually leave this project and, and move on to other, other things that I really want to build. And so people should know that even if I were to leave tomorrow, um, you know, it obviously would not be good for the project in some sense because I played a, a good role in it, but it will continue, you know, churning on with no problems or issues whatsoever for sure. Okay. So like for instance, with Uniswap, there's Uniswap Labs Incorporated. With Compound, there's Compound Labs Incorporated. You know, all yep. these different um, alleged DeFi projects uh, have these corporations, whether they're in the United States or in Switzerland, with Ave, I think, is in yeah, Switzerland. Yeah. And so does ThorChain have any kind of um, corporation or, or foundation or anything that is a legal structure behind it? Not that I'm aware of for sure. I mean, there's no corporation or anything like this that, that governs or runs or anything like this. And even ones that do like, you know, Ave or, or, or like uni of these things, like to me, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's like not decentralized. 
Because the question is, well, what control or power does this quote foundation or corporation have over the protocol, right? And there's a, if there's mm -hmm. a direct kind of control of it, like Ethereum Foundation has good control over the Ethereum blockchain, right? They, they can actually change the outcomes and unilaterally decide certain outcomes if they want to. So just because I actually read, I read an article something the other day about like how these DeFi projects aren't DeFi because they have these foundations and corporations, but that's by itself is not actually what makes something decentralized or centralized. So the question is, what role do they have in the protocol? Can they just unilaterally make changes to the entire thing without any any kind of uh, uh, community like buy-in or any of these things? And that's what you have to look at. Not so much the idea whether it has a corporation or not. That actually doesn't really matter. It's just about who controls the protocol, right? Just because a foundation so, exists doesn't mean necessarily it has control over the protocol. Yeah. Well, we're only five minutes into the chat and haven't gotten into the meat of it, but I'm already wanted, wanting to debate you on that topic a little bit because, <laughs> <laughs> because you know, I used to think that I used to think that um, until everything went down with Uniswap over the past six to eight months, I guess it's been. And one thing that I've come to realize is that it's totally possible to have a purely trustless, autonomous, immutable protocol like Uniswap versions one through three, uh, but also have a, a liability in a centralized corporation that's that's the factory for those protocols. And the reason is because um, they've had success in migrating users from one version to the next using mm -hmm. uh, whether it's like liquidity reward incentives or you know, whatever, different ways that they've incentivized it. Uh, I have little reason to think that they could not, that they would be unable to push a version four that's regulatory compliant, maybe with KYC, not trying to spread rumors, just hypothetically mm -hmm. shooting stuff off here. But I don't think that um, they're unable to launch something like that, um, push through a vote in their um, governance community, which we already know is largely controlled by the team and the investors, the VCs, uh, to heavily incentivize users to move to this KYC uh, protocol. So I'm starting to see the lines blur a little bit. I'm just looking down the road. So that was sort of where I was going with my question to you. Yeah, but um, it, it sounds like you and I actually agree with each other on this, right? Okay. I'm not here to like defend specifically Uni's foundation because honestly, I don't really know a whole lot about it. But like what makes a, a foundation a problem within, within the context of such relation is how much power does that foundation have, the uni foundation or labs or whatever the thing is, mm -hmm. over the protocol. Now, if you want to tell me, I, I, honestly, I don't know a whole lot about the, how the inner workings of uni works in terms of the foundation aspect to it. But if you want to tell me that that foundation has control over X, Y, and Z, then like, well, then I might agree with you, right? right. Uh, it, it's, okay. all, it's, it's all about, it, it's not about whether a foundation exists or not. It's about what power that foundation has. And, I, and in right. every foundation would be different from the next, right? Look at Shapeshift. Like Shapeshift is moving uh, away from a corporate entity that, that is like, you know, a centralized entity and moving towards a DAO. And then you can have the mm -hmm. debate of like, well, how decentralized is that DAO, right? Like how much voting power does person X, Y, or Z have? And you can get into that kind of larger conversation, right? But yeah, yeah. But just because something exists doesn't mean necessarily mean it's a problem. You, it you doesn't look at it on a case by case basis. Right. Understand what are the implications of this? Like does Hayden have over at the Uniswap team to change this outcome or 
you know, whatever the hell the thing might be. I don't want right. to like throw out random examples because I don't want to flood that project or anything like this. But no, of course, um, we're just using it as an example. And my my point yeah. is that um, centralized organizations pushing decentralized protocols um, can. Um, it's not just about the existing code. It's about what kind of power they have over the users, um, over institutional involvement, what kind yeah, of yeah. power the venture capital investors have over, you know, the organization. And then, you know, can use that influence to, to push fiat basically through governance. But yeah. I don't want to get to, so the reason I, I even went down this road with you is um, to, to draw a distinction between something like Thorchain and something like Uniswap, where yeah, so Thorchain, Thorchain does not have, have a, a foundation or a corporation uh, that's behind it all. And in fact, the the kind of the uh, the core team is has a, what we call a planned obsolescence. So that's slated to be in like July 2022. That might shift based upon, you know, the demand of the network and situation. We'll have to see when we get there. But the intention is just to like, you know, explode it out. And so that all the people that were there in the beginning to help kind of, um, create the initial vision and deliver the, like the, the original white paper and all these things kind of get exploded out and, and, and have, you know, pull back on terms of their involvement. Very similar to like, think about like Satoshi, like Satoshi was very involved in the very beginning. Like obviously he, she, they, whatever the hell the, the proper pronoun is here, it designed this really amazing thing and, and kind of helped it grow to a certain place. And then once it got to a place where the community could take it over, Satoshi just like, you know, took a step back, right? And like, mm-hmm. y'all got this, I'm going to take a step back and, you know, it'll just continue on on its own. I think that's the intention of the ThorChain project. We'll have to kind of follow Bitcoin's lead in this regard. And so myself and other people uh, in the in the, in the the court uh, dev team will probably step back and let the rest of the community kind of take it over and move it forward to the next phase of whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the core dev team, you said, is is pretty much anonymous um, to the public. Yeah. And you're, you and JP are the faces, like you're the known people. Um, well, so I, that- more so lately, like it's been predominantly myself, JP's kind of taking a step back uh, in okay. that regard. Like doing but we still know who he is, right? So um, Yeah, I mean, if, if you still know who he is, it's not like... Yeah. I'm not trying to bury secrets or anything like that. No, <laughs> like I get it's it. It's just knowledge. a little different from Satoshi because we know who to call in three years. If uh... sure, <laughs> it's a lot of sure. it's a lot of responsibility. I mean, you're like the the one or two people in a anonymous project that are the you know you you're doing it obviously so you can go out there and talk at conferences and so you can do stuff like this right and represent the protocol. Um, but it is like a yeah, it's a big uh, responsibility to take on. So. All right, let me try to provide my layman's explanation of what Thorchain is. Just for somebody who's brand new to it, I'm sure there's people listening that don't know. They hear about Thorchain, but they don't really understand what it is. So the way I like to explain it is because people are very familiar with Uniswap. They're very familiar with how that works, how you can swap tokens, even if they're not fully understanding the behind the scenes of it, they know you can swap one token for the other. Um, they get yep. that. Uh, and people also, to a certain extent, understand how um, Bitcoin bridges work. So things like uh, the REN protocol or um, other TBC. ones that are TBTC, right. Uh, those work in a way where you, Bitcoin gets locked on the Bitcoin chain, and then you get a tokenized representation of it on the Ethereum mm-hmm. chain. 
So Thorchain is sort of like the the hybrid mutant uh, of those two ideas, <laughs> where you can take Bitcoin on the Bitcoin chain and you can swap it, Uniswap style swap it for Ethereum. You know, so you you're not getting a tokenized Bitcoin on the Ethereum chain. You're actually getting Ethereum. So a swap is right. occurring between the two chains, and then it can be also any other chain that's supported by Thorchain. So in essence, Thorchain, um, it, the goal is to sort of obsolete centralized exchanges. When you want to swap between two tokens or two cryptocurrencies, you do it directly through this decentralized anonymous network instead of going to a centralized exchange and using them to to uh, swap and probably dox you in the process so how is that have yeah, i was good no, at this that was great that was a great way to think about it uh, <laughs> i've been thinking about thorchain a lot over the last year so i'm, I'm fine-tuning no, my, that, that's my great. explanation uh, and i would even push it a little bit further and say that uh that it's really a, a DeFi protocol that is chain agnostic, right? And what DeFi protocols that can be supported is pretty much anything, right? And so the first protocol that the that the that the community is kind of pushing out there is that AM, like that uni thing that you were just talking about, being able to exchange from one asset to another asset completely trustlessly, a layer one to layer one, no wrapped or or pegged assets whatsoever, anything like this. Uh, and so doing AMM was just kind of the first kind of stepping stone. Right. And then there's more things like kind of planned in the downstream of like a lending protocol similar to Aave, but like it's cross chain. It works with any and all assets. So you can, you know, provide some Ethereum and get some like a Bitcoin, you know, layer one real Bitcoin loan, uh, which is like another thing that the team has been talking about. And so there's a lot of different uh, DeFi protocols that can be built on top of Thorchain to kind of uh, unleash that kind of the DeFi um, capabilities, not of just not the Ethereum chain, but every chain, Bitcoin and Litecoin and, and, and Dogecoin and, you know, Ripple, like it doesn't matter how you might feel about some of those assets. Uh, it sh should all have access to the same DeFi protocols as everybody else. Like you should, all crypto should have kind of an equal chance for, you know, for lending and for swaps and for like any other protocol that you might, you know, conceive of. Uh, and so Thorchain is kind of thinking that of like, we need to build DeFi that is chain agnostic, that it can operate and function with any asset, any chain on anything, doesn't matter. Proof of work, proof of stake, proof of space time, proof of history, whatever. It's doesn't, none of that matters. Uh, they all should have equal access to have, you know, layer one DeFi applications available to them. Gotcha. That's cool. Cause I didn't even know that there was plans like that beyond just the, the AMM tool oh, yeah, that there's, currently there's exists. Pretty big plan. I mean, we, we can dive into those plans if you want to, but there's some pretty like, there's some things that, 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 that the community has planned around this protocol, around this network, that no other protocol in the world is capable of actually building. Uh, and it's going to solve some problems that are, you know, hair on fire issues that people have been needing to be solved for a long period of time. But, but nobody, we just lack the technology, the cryptography to make it possible until, you know, 2019 when we had, you know, Cosmos to, to build a chain pretty easily. We had threshold signatures to secure uh, vast sums of money in, a, in an anonymous way um, where nobody has control over the, over the assets. Like these are problems that need to be solved. And, and that was recently solved like you know, a couple of years ago, right? When Thorchain started to be developed and built and, and now it's like delivered on its white paper of, you know, being able to do cross chain swaps trustlessly layer one to layer one. 
So ThorChain is a blockchain, right? It mm. is an independent blockchain um, with validators. How many validators mm. does ThorChain have now? Uh, right now, it's got 38. Uh, it churns in more validators every uh, three days or so. So it, the, the number of validators that can be on the network will probably around whatever Tendermint allows or Cosmos allows, which I think is like around 200, maybe 250. Uh, we don't really quite know at this point. We'll, we're, we'll figure it out as we get further down the road. But the validators is, is a thing that's being churned up and, and kind of scale up over time. Okay. And was that sort of reset with the... Um, we'll get into the the exploits that happened uh, and the shutdown of the chain, but was that sort of reset during that period? Now it's growing back up. Uh, it wasn't reset. I mean, you say it was paused temporarily okay. while the network was being kind of uh, like kind of addressed and just do a full like kind of code scan by multiple sources and all these things that we went through. We, we can go to details of what actions were taken, but it was paused, we'll a churning pause for, you know, a couple months while the network was kind of being reestablished in a sense. But once the whole network's fully online, and right now the network has four out of five chains, once the fifth chain, which is Ethereum, is back online and trading and all these things, then churning gets re-enabled again, and then we start adding more, more validators to the network. Okay. So let me try to break down, and you can correct me, because I want to talk about the validators a little bit and about um, what kind of uh, responsibility, I guess, they have in the ecosystem. So for, for ThorChain to work, there needs to be liquidity. Just like on Uniswap, you have to have pairs and you have to have liquidity um, for those pairs. So with ThorChain, there are liquidity providers. Could be you, could be me, could be anybody who decides, okay, I'm going to provide liquidity against um, the BTC Rune pair, right? Or against, or maybe you can do single-sided. I'm not even sure. Um, you can, yeah. Okay, so you can do single-sided. By the way, Rune, as we discuss it, is the native cryptocurrency of ThorChain, and it'll come up multiple times while we're talking. So liquidity providers provide liquidity, um, and their their goal is to obviously earn a return. Um, they're earning rewards. They're earning um, swap fees and stuff like that. And uh, the the validators are responsible for securing the liquidity mm -hmm. is that a safe statement mm -hmm. yeah that's part that's okay basically what they're partially they're they're paid to do is to, to make sure those those uh, those assets are secured so it's basically the main job of the validators on thorchain is to protect those funds to um make sure everything happening on the chain is is um there's consensus occurring mm -hmm. and to um to what? How much liquidity is is in the system right now, as far as dollar, like U.S. dollar? In terms value? of the the pools depths or or, or total uh, on the on the security side as well, I think it's about. I just want to talk about. Oh, I see one hundred and sixty million about. Um, about I think it's about like one hundred sixty or two hundred million dollars. Okay, like so the thirty eight validators are securing right now one hundred and sixty million dollars worth of crypto mm -hmm. um, between their thirty eight validators, and as you said, that's going to increase. So one question I discussed with JP a little bit um, last year when we had our chat that it would be good to follow up on is um, how many of those validators would need to, because I'm sure they're communicating. I'm sure 
they know who each other are to a certain extent. Some of them, not all of them, some of them. I mean, um, they're all anonymous and we certainly encourage them to remain anonymous. Okay. Uh, if a few know who a few are, that might be possible, I suppose. If people are talking behind the, you know, revealing themselves, which we like, we very much encourage people to, to remain anonymous. I don't, okay. I, mean, I don't know what the validators are. If you want to ask me who the validators are, I actually don't know. So, and I prefer to keep it that way. Oh, okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, because when I think when I spoke with JP, he mentioned that some of them may be chatting. Some of them may be a chat. Like we don't know, right? We don't know if if well, there's a we, chat room we somewhere. We specifically they, designed it in a way that you that that you cannot know who they are without having some sort of like public conversation. Like there's no yeah. there's no um, you have to like connect publicly first, and then you have to prove your identity, prove that you're an actual validator, and then create like a secret Telegram group somewhere on the internet, whatever. Uh, I highly, highly, highly doubt that's actually happening. But if it is, I'm not aware of it. But okay. the only way you would able to, able to do is if you would have to like go into the Discord, go into one of the specific channels of Discord, and say, "Hey, I am this validator. Let's all meet in this lo- like this Telegram group, right?" And then continue on, which I have not seen, not seen any of those kinds of messages at all. Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, this is my constant challenge in in crypto in general is. I, I sort of come from a Bitcoin first set of principles mm-hmm. um, and I bring that to DeFi, which makes it really challenging sometimes uh, to evaluate DeFi because the way I look at it is is adversarially, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I tend to think not what's, if something's unlikely, that doesn't mean I rule it out as a possibility. If it's possible, mm-hmm. then it could happen, right? So mm-hmm. let's just say, one of the 38 valid, and this is hypothetical, but I'm trying to get to a point. Yeah. One of the 38 validators gets, you know, goes crazy, goes on Twitter and says, you know what? I want to destroy Thorchain. If you're a validator, join me in this, in this telegram group. How many of the other validators would have to join and decide to collude with that validator in order to, um, to steal the funds or to to bring down the network? One or the, yeah. or the other. So to steal the network, to steal the funds. So there's two ways you can do it. If you were a malicious actor and you wanted to do it, there's two ways you can do it. If you have one third plus one of the validators, you could, you could, you know, those individuals could collude together to shut down the network and basically lock everything up basically forever, right? Including the money that they put into the system to be able to attack the system. So they would be burning their own capital, which would be millions and millions and millions of dollars, by the way. So you can do that attack of just like, if I don't, if I'm not a rational actor and I don't care about burning millions of dollars, then I could do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be your first option if you wanted to like take down the network. Or by the way, things. if you're, if you're being, and when we talk about irrational actors, a lot of times people just write that off as it'll never happen because it's irrational. Why would they burn their own money? Uh, we're seeing more and more that, these types of situations can be forced by state actors. They can be forced by regulators. They can be forced by threat of jail time. Um, there's a lot of different ways that you can force somebody to burn their own money. So I don't want to just write it off like, oh, it's nothing that could ever possibly happen. Well, I want to acknowledge it. I don't, don't want to seem like I'm writing anything off. I'm, I'm, I'm really just No, not to... you. I'm just saying for most people oh, when okay, I bring yeah. that, when we go down that road, they're like, oh, the incentive is is not there for them to burn their own money. So it'll yeah, never they happen. Be, they can be pressured by a state actor to like shut down your note. And that's partially why 
um, we advocate for within the community that uh, nodes are anonymous and validators are you know, not known. So it makes it really hard, much harder for a, for a government agency to put pressure on an individual to shut down their node when they don't know that they have their node, you know? And so mm -hmm. there's a, that, that would open another whole conversation that would be a 30 minute conversation on itself. <laughs> but right. the first way you could possibly do it is get one third plus one of the validators to, to collude, to just shut everything down and lock it up forever. You know, all the funds, everything just like, you know, just dead. That's the first way you could possibly do it. Uh, the second way to do it is to do it in a profitable way, which you would require you to have uh, basically two thirds of the validators colluding together to, to collude and, and, and steal the funds. But the problem with this is that it's, it's, that it's actually not profitable. And this is really one of the very important design choices that ThorChain made over a lot of the other decks out there that you see, including those like wrap tokens you were talking about before, is that you always have more at, at, at stake then you uh, more to lose than you have to gain. So even if those validators came together and they said, okay, let's go ahead and steal all the Bitcoin and steal all the Ethereum and steal all the Tether and steal all the, the Binance coin or whatever, uh, they would always lose money because the amount of runes they put into the system will always be worth more than the assets that they're taking. And as soon as they take all those assets, like ThorChain is done, like rune is over. Rune is now basically zero because the network is not secure and has no valuable purpose because Rune's value derives from the value of the network. If the network's just like all the assets are gone, then like Rune's worth zero. So you would end up spending like hypothetically like hundreds of millions of dollars to cyber attack the network in this way. And then you would steal, you know, 70, you know, $160 million in various other assets, but you would always put up much larger in funds than you would ever lose. So assuming rational actors, I know you just made that point about how not everybody's rational, state pressures, Etc. Cetera, et cetera, which is valid and, and true in all these things. Uh, within a rational actors, they would never do this because you would always lose money. That's not true with other uh, exchanges that we see, DEXs that we see in terms of how the economics work. It's really important that the security of the network is tied, coupled very closely with, this, with the TVL, the net, with the, you know, the value of the bond. Uh, oh, sorry, the value of the, of the pools. Uh, and that network, this network kind of really prioritizes that as a really important economic security uh, of, of all those assets. Uh, can it happen? Sure, right? Like, uh, like, of course it could happen, hypothetically speaking, right? It can happen to any, any chain can be attacked in this way. Any proof of stake network can be attacked in this way. Or any Bitcoin can be attacked 51% attack if they want to. Some irrational actor wanted to buy up all the mining hardware to 51% attack, you know, which maybe the US would do that. Like, and it has the money to, like it's, US has the money to do that if they wanted to. Will they do that? Well, that's, probably highly unlikely and not really, you know, worth the U.S.'s time and all these things. But uh, but in ThorChain's case, whenever you cyber attack the network, you always lose money. You never gain. And that's like specifically how it's designed. Okay. <clears throat> and you're right that it's a, it's a you know, um, any blockchain is susceptible to attack. There's no such thing as an attack-proof blockchain. And yeah. we, we don't know how to make one. Um, but they get less prone to attack and less the attacks become less likely as they they grow in size as um, they grow in number of validators or miners right. and decentralize the 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 power so right, right now thorchain is um, at 38 validators it would you know take um, what like 13 of them or so to uh, shut down the network losing their own money, right? So that's the, 
the version where they're completely screwed. Uh, and then two thirds to uh, basically steal funds, but they'd still come out on a losing end financially. Yeah. It sounds like so. Yeah. Um, so it's. I do think it's important though to call out that it's still in the uh, early stages of you know. I mean, every blockchain has to start somewhere. If you tried to attack Bitcoin in 2010, it would have been pretty easy uh, versus sure, yeah. in 2021, right? right. So. You know, Bitcoin had this like wonderful grace period of like six ish years where like nobody gave a shit <laughs> to attack it. Like it had this like kind of like secret thing happening on the like in the interwebs and like, why would I attack this digital bullshit coin that doesn't make any sense? Right. Like that's what the, how the world probably perceived Bitcoin in the first like six ish years or so like that. So it had that time to kind of to grow its hash rate to a, to a, to a you know, a, a healthy level before people saw you know value in attacking which is really great but in 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 starting a proof of chain like network today is like a lot harder because of that like that's part of like you know bitcoin's kind of uh uh it's like inception it had that kind of like had that grace period but no other blockchain if you want to start a new proof of work today it'll be like really hard because people could like easily attack it pretty fast probably right like, and people care because they know assets can be worth money and i can attack it and double spend and do all these things that I want to do to manipulate that chain. But like proof yeah. of work is a little bit different because you don't, you can, you start with that security effectively. Uh, well, you still have to build the security over time, but it's just up, the, the curve is much faster than what you would see a proof of work be. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a valid comparison. You know, a lot of times people use Bitcoin as a comparison when they're talking about other things like, for instance, if a project, if a DeFi project starts out with an, a multi-sig admin key, which is capable of making basically any changes to the code, taking all the funds out of the thing, um, a common retort when I mention that this key exists is, well, Bitcoin was centralized in its early stages. That's not a valid comparison because Bitcoin never had a centralized choke point that was deliberately built in to the protocol, uh, like an admin key. Satoshi didn't start this thing um, all, you know, just on one, um, all residing on one computer, closed off so that nobody else could ever participate. It was always open for anybody to join in. So that's invalid. But what Chad is saying is valid in that Thorchain is a, a, a blockchain, a proof of stake. Uh, is that it's proof of stake, right? Not delegated? Mm, not daily. Proof of stake blockchain. At least centralization. Don't like that. Okay, right. So, you know, it. there's no way to start a proof of stake blockchain or, again, a proof of work blockchain without starting from square one. You have to always start from square one. So yeah. now that's not to say that it's as decentralized as it could possibly be on square one. You just have to recognize as it's growing that it's going to hopefully continue to decentralize. But in those early days, you do face this type of situation where 13 validators <laughs> could, and it, it sounds like a lot. It's not, it's really not a lot. 13 validators um, is not a lot. It's 13 human beings could find each other for whatever reason, or be pursued by a state actor, um, track them down, say, we're throwing you and your families in jail. If you don't do this sounds crazy until it actually happens. 
not trying to scare people. I'm saying <laughs> you need to understand that that's going right, to change well, as it grows. I, I will respectfully disagree on that in that sense. I mean, 13, you're right. The number sounds quite low, right? But those people are, you know, have like well over a hundred million dollars put into the system that they're heavily invested into. And they would really nuts to see, to see that go away for them for their own personal reasons, which obviously makes complete sense. And they're all like anonymous. So I, I don't know who they are. I don't know who all the values are for sure. Like if I wanted to, to do this attack, I literally would not be able to do it even if I wanted to do it. Like, so mm -hmm. I don't know how this would okay. hypothetically go, but like, but Wouldn't sure. it be yeah, a great movie though? Okay. The, the year, then. the year is uh, 2025. Crypto has just exploded. It's like the world is, is fully on board. Um, it's being used to send money across borders without, you know, countries even being involved or knowing what's going on. Um, the world, the one world government, which has now been formed, has put together <laughs> a task force, okay, to track down the the thirteen validators of Thorchain, which would well, be needed. in twenty twenty five. It will not be thirteen in twenty twenty five. It'll be closer to a hundred, but. Okay, fair enough. But it would be a good movie, right? I keep writing these screenplays in my head. I'm like, oh man, that would be uh, kind of cool. I, I watch um, it. I'd watch that movie. But you know what? <laughs> but your argument <laughs> applies to anything that is a proof of stake network or delegated proof of stake. Like every chain yes, that I get you can it. conceive of has this concept behind it, right? Every proof of stake. The it only does. one that is not is ones that are not proof of stake, like proof of work, and and I mean, even like even. Solana would be suggested to, would be you know affected by this you know like almost every single chain in the world except for proof of work because proof of work has a different design choice in terms of what is important like Bitcoin prioritizes uh, security and decentralization like those are the two attributes that it kind of like goes for like that's most important which is like great it's perfect for what it's trying to be which is a, a store of value right. But by doing so, you also have this trade-off of like having really slow block times and like you have to have con uh, confirmations to make sure the transactions are actually real before you actually think that they're real, right? There's all these kind of design choices and trade-offs that you make, which are like in Bitcoin's case, it's like the perfect choice, like 100%, like fantastic job to, to, to Satoshi, right? But in Thorchain's case, you can't do this with a proof of work network. It's just not practical. You can't have... A, a kind of a loose form of like our transactions are real or not. And we have to wait a few blocks before they're real. You can't have 10 minute block times or something like this because you have to, if you're transacting with very fast blockchains, you can't have the, the medium be this, like the, the slowest blockchain in the world. Like that would just not function at all. Like you cannot mm -hmm. build what Thorchain is with proof of work. You can only right. do it with proof of stake. And maybe there's another like form you can do it, but like that's the only practical way you can do this. And you're right. It has that trade-off of like, hey, irrational actors could collude in a way to, to to burn the whole world down and just say fuck it all, right? And burn it all. Uh, we haven't seen that on any proof of stake network that I'm aware of, top of my head at least. Uh, I hope we never see that because that would be, you know, obviously a bad scenario. But we'll see. Right. You know, yep. <laughs> time will tell. Well, look, you know, I I um, I bring this up and I go down these roads because it helps people who are newer to the space, start to understand um, the differences, you know, between different protocols and what kind of risks they might be taking if they get in early. I will say this, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again, that as I've observed Thorchain over the last, you know, what, 
couple years or 18 months or whatever uh, that I've been watching it. Um, I do believe that the decisions that have been made and the trade-offs that have been made um, about the design of the network are all made to make this as, like you just said, as decentralized as it can be and still be able to achieve its purpose, still be able to achieve its goal. I don't think that we have the technology today to have a um, completely trustless um, system that's capable of doing what Thorchain is already capable of doing. You know, so I, people think that I'm just this trustlessness maximalist that just, you know, won't even look at anything if it has any sort of centralization or any less than Bitcoin. Um, but that's not true. You know, it's, it's really, it's about trade-offs. It's about transparency, you know? And, and I think that um, Thorchain has always been out there saying, if you use this at this stage, you're still an early mover. You're still a big risk taker. You're still somebody who um, is willing to be part of this trial by fire situation, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. why when the exploits happened um, earlier this year, um, that was a message I put out there too, is that of all the projects out there in DeFi, nobody has done more to warn users about the risks than Thorchain. I would say Curve is also up there. Curve does a pretty good job, but but yeah. Thorchain is always out there saying this is chaos net. This is you. If you're a part of this, you are a crazy person. Um, <laughs> so um, well, not sure if I use the well, word crazy person, but well, I'd say. You know, don't put your life savings into 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 right. like that would be. Right. I would. I don't do that, and I don't think anybody else should do that. Like, uh, it is chaos net. The network does need to be hardened over time, and because it's it's one of the most technically complex and one of the most ambitious ambitious projects in crypto, it needs much more time to to harden and to and to like into bake in a sense and to mature than you know your average DeFi protocol. It really has a much higher surface area of attack than pretty much any and all other DeFi products in the space. And so that we, and we all knew this and we all like it, it, we, as a community, we're kind of talking about this from like more or less day one and saying, we have to be careful. We have to be, we have to cap the amount of liquidity in the network because we don't want, you know, $2 billion to be there in day two and then something terrible to happen. So we're specifically designed to like keep the money relatively small in the network. So if and when the network ever is has an instant, like we saw, like you we were just mentioning before, the treasury is there to support it and say, okay, you know, we had a bug, it was exploited, you know, this much dollars and cents was taken out. Let's go ahead and use the treasury to reimburse all those people who, you know, took a risk by providing liquidity to Thorchain and say, we, we appreciate you doing that and kind of working with us and helping to grow the project and helping it to get to where it needs to get to. Let us use the treasury to like make sure nobody's really affected by it in the end, and everybody gets reimbursed. Mm -hmm. You know, every every uh, satoshi that they might have lost in the in the process. Before that, Thorchain was humming along pretty good, right? It was like it was there was the migration to the actual Thorchain because the rune was launched um, on um, Binance. Uh, that's token on Binance. Yeah, it was on Binance uh, on Binance Chain. And then the migration happened over to Thorchain. You're able to move your your native rune, your rune over to native rune on Thorchain. Um, I did some swaps. I was trying out ThorSwap and some other uh, swap tools that are built on Thorchain. Mm -hmm. um, 
Actually, I would have done that if I owned any crypto, but I don't own any crypto. So, um, but uh, <laughs> but anyway, I digress. So um, you too, you don't own any crypto. I don't own any crypto either. No, I <laughs> wish I did. People keep talking about it, and I've gotten pretty well versed on it. But no, I still don't own any. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I was yeah. Anyway, so uh, and things were going pretty good, right? I mean, I, there was still so the you mentioned the caps on the liquidity. And it was a sort of phased approach, right? So you guys did a guarded launch, which I I always advocate for in DeFi, which we hardly ever see. And guarded launch means we don't just open it up. You can put $10 billion in the thing on day one. You start small. You make sure people aren't going to risk more than you as a developer are willing to protect, to, to feel the faith of the code is, you know, put your trust in that code. So where did it start out and how, how did it grow initially as far as the caps go? Uh, I think on day one, the caps was, I think like 5 million us, I think, or something like oh, this. It was really low. Okay. Yeah. Really, really low. In fact, yeah. There was a, a little bit of a fight, you know, about like, should we go higher? No, let's keep it lower. Like, no, we should go. <laughs> you know what I mean? There was a little bit of a, a push and pull. Mm-hmm. And there was an argument saying that if the, if the caps are too low, and the pools aren't very that aren't very deep, then the fees would be very high because like the fee of, of swaps are relational to the depth of the network and the size of your trade. And so there's this push of like, well, we should make it bigger so that the fees aren't like so high because you know the liquidity is pushed to be so low. And so there was a debate back and forth. And I think in the end we I think we've settled on a good medium between all those things. But it started off, I think around like five million US or something like this, and it's kind of grown up over time and every week of, of like, you know, of clean operation and no issues and, you know, fixing X, Y, and Z bugs and whatever, you know, we might find, we just kind of slowly kind of ramp it up over time uh, to a place where we feel it's the network is sufficiently, you know, secured or hardened or these things and just kind of ramp it up. Okay. And um, you mentioned a, a moment ago, very candidly, which I appreciate that ThorChain as a project basically has a larger attack surface than almost any other or maybe any other DeFi project in existence just because it's existing on so many different chains. It has its own chain. You have this unique validator system. Um, So when you're like, if you're on the bearish side of that guarded launch and you're, you're wanting to keep it super low initially, what are you concerned about? Are you, are you concerned about the types of things that eventually did actually happen as far as the tax go? Or is there something else that you're trying to protect from? Oh, I mean, from at least in my head, the number one thing was exploits, right? And people have told, if you ask me this question over the last two years of its development, like, hey, where's the thing that keeps you up at night? And I've always said like, man, that exploits, man, those things like, yeah, that's, that's like the worst nightmare. Anybody who builds in the DeFi space, uh, builds protocols like, you all know how I feel there. So like, it's, it's really, um, that's the thing that you're most concerned about, you know, and you don't want to, I mean, you have to take this stuff very seriously because obviously you're dealing with other people's money. Right. And so you, you can't just be like, whatever, let's just like throw the shit up online and like, everything's cool. Like, you, like you don't want to just do that. Right. So you want to be very guarded in, in, in the way that you do that. And we've, we've seen projects do that. I'm not going to name specific ones because I don't want to shit on anybody here, but like we've seen projects, you know, launch and then day two they've got like one point billion dollars or six hundred million dollars i've seen a few do that and then like oh there's a huge bug and like the funds are lost like oh shit right like we've seen that and that's to me that's just um being a bit uh irresponsible in terms of how you approach this stuff and uh so 
we thought very differently about that. Now, it wasn't just about exploits, right? Um, there are a lot of complexities around like, you know, for example, like gas is really actually quite difficult and complex, right? How does the network handle the gas of, you know, chain A or chain B or chain C? They're all very different in terms of how they design or how they function. And, you know, some have like RBF, for example, like Bitcoin is RBF, which is like replaced by fee and, and which is not really used in, 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 in this case. But like it also has like child pays for parent, right? And so if you have a, a transaction that's not doesn't have enough gas, you can make a new transaction and pull this one in, right? But Ethereum doesn't have that. And so in the beginning, in the first like couple of months, there was a lot of like bug fixes of like getting some of the real world activity to function correctly, like, like gas being one of those examples. We saw uh, like Bitcoin Cash had this weird bug. I don't, know, I don't even say it's a bug, but it's a weird behavior where you would send in a transaction to an address to an address format that was the like old legacy address format, and then it would get converted within the Bitcoin Cash blockchain to the new address, and that's where the funds would arrive. So it's like Thorchain was like sending funds here, but that it would never arrive here, and so like it confused the network. Like, oh, I, I, I'm pretty sure I just sent funds there, and it's not there. So that's not right. <laughs> and so there's like all these like really weird edge cases, you know, even like Bitcoin has um, something called an opera turn, which is like their memo. And uh, in testnet, you could have as many opera turns as you wanted, right? So you could have your memo could be arbitrarily long, but in mainnet of Bitcoin, that's not the case. You actually have one opera turn, which is 80 bytes. So we're like, Oh crap. So if you want to swap from Bitcoin to Monero, let's just say where the Monero addresses are like 97 bytes, Oh crap, you can't actually do that. You can't actually swap, but from you know Bitcoin to Monero, that's actually you know a problem we gotta fix. And we came up with Thor names as a way of fixing that problem. So some of the issues that you might come across, you would never find in local environments, you would never find in the testnet environments. You only have to find them like in the real world with like real activity and real actors and these things. Economics is one example of that some of those technological weirdy oddity things, like that Bitcoin cash thing I mentioned. Like these things need to be worked out kind of in the real world rather than, you know, on a test net. And so we were, we needed yeah. a few months to kind of let the chain kind of mature in this sense as well. And we've gotten past those kind of those initial bugs and, and, and fixed them all and everything carried on and everything was fine. Right. Right. Yeah. And I just want to, you know, for, for those listening, I want to um, distinguish between what Chad is saying and the way he's talking about these issues uh, versus other projects and other developers in the space who you hear say this the exact opposite, and they do the exact opposite in that this whole test and prod mentality where you're just going to open the floodgates and let any amount of money flow into this brand new uh, idea of a DeFi, of a, of a smart contract um, that's complex and using three different or five different um, sort of tie-ins to other permissionless protocols, and you really don't know what's going to happen. And you go out there, I guess we saw this more earlier in the year and last year than we are right now, but but you go out there and say, look, don't put your money in this. This is not something you should use, you know, and you know darn well, <laughs> as soon as it goes up, people are going to put money in it. And then a, three days later, it's like it's like 500 million or a billion dollars locked in the project and then it gets hacked or exploited. Yep. Um, that's the type of behavior I mean, personally, I advocate against, you know, and uh, guarded launches being response. There is no reason every single DeFi uh, team couldn't use some sort of a guarded launch 
when they're putting their stuff out there. Um, the only thing stopping them from doing that is recklessness and greed. Okay, so this is me saying that, not, not Chad. <laughs> so, um, you know, I just want to throw that out there because this is why, um, despite like some concerns um, about certain aspects of ThorChain or certain places where I'd like to see it decentralized more, as we're talking, um, I respect the 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 method and the process that ThorChain has followed from the um, anonymity to the attempts to be as decentralized as possible to the guarded launches to the messaging. Um, it's all been great, you know, so um, that's that's why I um, have always you don't hear me trashing it. You know, even when the exploits happen, I'm not out there trashing it like others. It's um, I like the project and I like the way it's been handled. So, yeah, that's especially important in ThorChain's case because uh, it's trailblazing concepts and, and, and that nobody's ever done before in the history of like crypto. Like what's really like. Uh, creating a new thing that never existed before. It has experimental economics. It has experimental cryptography. It has experimental concepts behind it that need to be, you know, time to prove themselves in a real economic situation with real funds, real money to cause real actors to do what they would really do in reality, right? So ThorChain more, I would argue, is more important that ThorChain has a guard launch than some other projects uh, because some are just like, a clone of like, of like, you know, an AMM or something like this, where it's the economics are pretty. Yeah. But know, they still well get across. exploited and hacked. So you can still get exploited. Guess what? Yeah, and that's totally they true. all do. They all need 100% it. 100% true. Yeah. But I would say that ThorChain can be exploited and hacked. In addition to that, it also has these experimental economics, experimental cryptography that it utilizes to secure all its assets and these things. And so it needs extra, it needs to be extra secure or extra careful in the way that it approaches things. Um, mm-hmm than I think a lot of other projects need to be. Yeah. So as much as I like the project, um, I want to beat you up on it some more. Um, <laughs> Bring it. So before before the exploits happened, and there were two back-to-back big ones, um, Shapeshift launched yep. ThorChain as sort of its, like Shapeshift was a centralized exchange, basically, that required KYC and everything. Uh, and all of a sudden, Shapeshift says, "We're no longer an exchange, a, dec- a centralized exchange. We're no longer even a company. Uh, we're just going to become a DAO, and we're going to use ThorChain as our exchange, um, which or one of the exchanges, more accurately, as one of the exchanges that you can use to swap the same way you could before, except now you're doing it." in a decentralized uh, way that doesn't require KYC. So um, did, was there any, one thing I was wondering at the time was how that happened. Um, And I know there's no ThorChain company, but was there like a conversation? Was there a strategic alliance like between Shapeshift and people on the ThorChain team before that was announced like were you guys working together is there any business relationship like how did that come to be um well i wouldn't say there's a business relationship i would say that i you know i know eric Voorhees. he's a great guy very smart guy i know the team over at shapeshift i've had conversations with those individuals um but there's no business relationship there was no um there was no private collaboration of any kind it was just more like hey the shapeshift team saw what the ThorChain community was building and said like, this is like 
this is our this is our deal here. This is like with the thing that we've been always been looking for since the beginning of Shapeshift. This is like the realization of that that kind of more purity of like of no KYC as Shapeshift started that way, and they had were succumbed to the to the uh, the pressures of you know government uh, as they should do because that would I would not I probably would do the same thing if I was Eric Voorhees, but. Uh, but they said like, this is the thing that we've always wanted. And they just like plugged into it, right? It wasn't any kind of like backroom deals of any kind, shape or form. Nobody got paid in this or that, or I don't even know what, what that would even look like to be honest with you. But um, the team is just a fan of the project. They saw an opportunity to take their vision to where they wanted to be. And they saw that ThorChain was the vehicle to do that. They allowed them to do cross-chain swaps, get real Bitcoin for real Ethereum. And that, they thought that was, you know, the cat's pajamas in a sense. So, uh, but right. I know those guys, we have conversations once in a while. They're just really smart people, uh, but there's no like business dealings of any kind. Okay. That, that, and that makes total sense to me. Um, you know, I, I think uh, it's, it's a fair thing to state that, that people can connect, people can talk in the space, you know, even if it's supposed to be decentralized, it's okay to, collaborate between projects and potentially join forces on projects. So I think that makes total sense. So shapeshift. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We get reached out to by like various VCs, you know, and you know, like firms uh, and like people in the industry. Um, I don't want to name like names or anything like this, but um, people are very excited about this, like very well established, smart people in the industry. Uh, and they always want to learn more. And, and, and oftentimes they reach out to, myself or, or just the, the community as a whole. And they ask a lot of questions. They want to know, like, how does this work? And what happens What this happens? And how does this not happen? They're like, we want to stop this from happening. And so they ask all these questions and, and I'm here and we're here and the community is here to like answer them to the best of our abilities and to explain all these things. Um, but other than that, there's not really much, much happening, you know, They're just okay. like answering questions really. Did activity on the network um, or liquidity levels rise after the shapeshift partnership? And do you think that that might've made the network a more attractive target for exploits? Um, I mean, so I can't actually answer the first question because shapeshift launched the same day that the network was launched. <laughs> so I, I don't have oh. a before and after to compare it to. <laughs> On the same, you wait, because we were able to use ThorChain uh, before shapeshift launched it, right? Well, not, um, not on the multi-chain network. So there was a single chain okay. kind of proof of concept chain that existed for about a year. And it was just recently, you know, shut down by the community um, as it, you know, it served its purpose. It's retired, you know, moving on from, you know, V1, quote unquote, to V2, if you want to call it that, which is not exactly accurate, but whatever. Uh, and so once multi-chain was launched and you allowed you to do Bitcoin to, you know, Ethereum to Bitcoin Cash and these things, like as soon as that happened, Shapeshift was like day one. Right there. I see. Um, and so I, and can I actually you, have no comparison to make. Can you just distinguish again between um, what changed, like what was the single chain network uh, versus the multi-chain network? Like what's the difference? Yeah. So so what we call single chain chaos net, I think was launched like about a year ago or a little over a year. Uh, and it was just there to prove the concept and the economics and the cryptography of the concept. And so it only allowed you to swap with a single chain, which was Binance chain. So you could swap, you know, one BEP2 asset to another BEP2 asset, you know? 
uh, and it was, and it, it's still used like a separate chain to do all those things, just prove that the technology can connect to a remote chain and then facilitate, you know, swaps and, and, and all these things, provide liquidity, withdraw, you know, all the, like the economics, the, how does the, the, uh, the slip base fee model work against the Uniswap model, like in terms of reality, like actual market conditions. And so it was there to kind of prove all that idea. And it ran for about a year or so. But obviously the vision was not to just, just support, you know, Binance chain, obviously the vision to support pretty much any chain you really wanted to. And so a new chain was created, what we now call uh, multi-chain chaos net, which is a separate sovereign chain from the first one. And this one was built from the, from day one to have five different chains, which is Bitcoin, Ethereum, Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, and Binance coin, Binance chain. Um, and so that was just there to like, okay, that one served its purpose. It proved it. You know, we were able to launch, we were able to swap. People could see that the technology was actually being built. It wasn't just like something in a white paper that people were talking about, right? There was actually provable technology that functioned fundamentally. And then once we got the rest of the, the, the code to work with these new changes, there was, yeah, as you mentioned before, there's a, a BEP2 rune. It got migrated to a, a native asset on the Thor chain. We did um, uh, sharding of Asgard uh, threshold signatures so we could have more validators in the network as much as reasonably possible. Um, there's lots of changes that were made and this new network, uh, including single-sided staking. You asked about that earlier. You could provide just Bitcoin you know, to the network if you wanted mm -hmm. to um, and all this kind of stuff. But then the chain was launched, I think, in April, I think April 12th, I think, or April 19th. I can't remember the exact day off the top of my head. Um, and it's been going for quite a while. It, had, it was running great for a, for a long time until we got those uh, exploits we had a few a couple months ago. Um, which again, that just proved the technology like, fundamentally works. Right now, it's just right. a, a question of like of just hardening of like you know figure out all the the bugs and the kind of things to kind of patch and work on. Um, part of the point of halting the network for two weeks, or, sorry, two months, was to uh, to step back recollect, ask ourselves, okay, is there something fundamentally wrong with the ThorChain design? Is there something really that we really need to, to rethink and redevelop? And we brought in teams, literally teams of external people. We've hired new teams, people within the community um, to help kind of establish that. And in the end, uh, all the external teams like Trail of Bits and Halborn Security, they found like no critical issues uh, whatsoever. And so mm -hmm. we realized that well, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with its structure and its architecture, its design choices. Those things are working perfectly well. There's just a few kind of like uh, cracks in, in the wall. In a sense, we just got to like, you know, mend up, uh, metaphorically speaking. Um, okay. And so we've made those changes, fixed those fixed those potential uh, attack vectors. And then we've created new ways of, of attacking, of protecting the network from all sorts of attack vectors that I can't even think of or imagine today. Just like, it doesn't even matter how you attack the network, you know, in some sense. And it, because these kind of blanketed protections are there to protect the network and a whole myriad of things that I, more for the re reasons that I can't think of rather than the reasons that I can think of, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about, um, cause everything was humming along for about three months, I guess. Uh, and then you got hit with an exploit on, um, July 15th, 2021. So, um, yeah, I want to detour just a little bit too uh, when we're talking about the exploit. And I want to ask you a couple questions about how that went down because I think a lot of users, they hear about these exploits, they hear about the money lost, they hear about um, 
you know, the postmortem and all that. But we don't really get to talk much about, like, as the developer, as the technical lead on the project, like, what actually goes down when you hear about it, what you're feeling during that time, like, um, all that kind of stuff. So I just wanted to ask you first, like, um, cause you're a guy with a life with, you know, a family, you know, you're, you're doing stuff out there, um, in the world. You're not just always sitting in front of your computer. So like, how did you initially hear that the protocol was being exploited? Yeah. So, uh, at the time I actually was at the zoo. <laughs> <laughs> I was at the zoo okay. with my wife and and hanging out with her her brother and her uh, her sorry her sister and her sister's boyfriend, and so we so we had to jump in the car and and drive back uh, home to, so I could get on my laptop and and you know and and so you see it on your on. phone and you're like looking at your phone. Everybody's like, "What's wrong?" You're looking. They're looking at the elephants or the tigers, and you're like, <laughs> "We gotta go now." Don't ask questions. Jump in the car. Let's go. Basically, yeah, is that how it went down? pretty much exactly what happened. I okay. looked at my phone. I got text messages from one of the community members and, and saying that you know the network was exploited. You know, still trying to figure out what's happening. I'm like, holy shit! You know, that's like the nightmare scenario, obviously. For like, I mean, uh, building a DeFi protocol is like it's probably like a hundred x more stressful than I thought it was going to be getting into it. <laughs> it's yeah. like it's. Uh, insane how uh, how difficult it is, but also how incredibly stressful it is. Because the exploits uh, the exploits happening, but it's not like it's not like you're getting a, a blinking light on your phone like you would if you were like an IT administrator. Like network is down. Like you're not getting that. You're getting like no, no. some anonymous person in the chat who you may or may not know who it is who's DMing you like, "Hey, dude, like." we just got robbed for millions. Like you should probably check this out. It's <laughs> yeah. already happened. It's already in the past. Um, yeah. you, and you don't know if it's ongoing. You don't know if there's more right. coming. You don't know what's, you, you just have to zoo and you're like, how much funds were taken. You don't know if it was on on purpose or just somebody stumbled upon something by accident. Like you, like you don't know. And like in that moment, your brain's like, oh my, like you're, you're trying to like wrap your head around what's happening and, and, you know, understanding what's happening, what, what we need to do to protect the network. And, you know, all that stuff, it's just, it sets off a chain reaction of just, you know, uh, of just so many things. Right. Yeah. Uh, so you it's, run it's home hard. and you, you, you get in front of your computer and obviously you're with the team chatting about it and, um, trying to establish like what happened and why it happened. And, um, would you say like in the back of your mind, deep down before this happened, were you, expecting it to happen on some level like were you expecting an exploit at some point not well, to say so, you not to say you wanted it to happen i'm just saying like were you shocked really when you heard there was an yeah <laughs> were you really completely caught off guard or did you have some sort of psychological plan for this i'd say this I'd say that um the problem with launching a network like this one is that there's always a known unknown whether there are exploits or not, right? You can have, you can look at the code all day. You can have it audited by a hundred thousand people, right? It does not matter. You will, it would always be a known, you know that you don't know. It's a known unknown. 
that there are or are not exploits in the system, right? And so my thinking at when we actually launched Mala Chain is that it, okay, we felt it felt good. We reviewed the code a bunch of times. It, you know, from our perspective, everything looks good. The only way to find problems moving forward is just getting it out into the world, right? And we're going to do like have very low caps just in case something happens. And so I think after a few months, it kind of starts to build a little bit of confidence. Like, okay, we've been operating for a few months and there's hundred million dollars in there. And okay, that's, everything's still fine. And, but you, you, you never, you never like sleep at night fully and thinking that, yeah, everything's, you know, there's no problem there. Like, like you never, like it'll be, you can fast forward 10 years into the future. I will still not think, <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> there will never be a day where I will ever say that I'm not worried about exploits, right? And mm -hmm. there could be another exploit of Thorchain in the future. I will certainly like say that's totally possible, whether it's in the current code or it's kind of similar, something similar to happen at Compound uh, yesterday, I think it was, where you introduce a new code change, which that new code change has some sort of regression of some form in it that causes an issue of some kind. Like you never know, right? Even if the code now is 100% hard, which I would never even make that statement because I never would know that statement. You never know that it could be something introduced in the future. Even um, uh, one of these exploits was actually introduced by uh, somebody that was not one of the core devs. It just been a small change to make a you know thing. Looked innocuous at the time, and it certainly was not right. It caused a significant issue, obviously. Um, so I was not surprised that network. I was terrified that we get exploited. And I was not surprised that it got exploited. And I will not be surprised if it gets exploited in the future because this stuff is hard to do, like really fucking mm -hmm. hard to build. Uh, and even like a, one character off or a single line of code can break the whole thing. And in Thorchain's case, that's like 150,000 lines of code to, to do. So like it's the, 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 the difficulty here is uh, astronomical in it. But... Uh, I stay hardened in the sense of um, of being here, working on it, getting hit and getting standing back up again and getting it done because I feel incredibly strongly that the crypto space absolutely requires to have something like ThorChain. It's not like a fun thing. It's not a cool dap. It's like, wouldn't it be fun or interesting if we had this thing? No, 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 no. We actually need it as a community. And this is why everybody in the crypto space, even if you're a Bitcoin maxi, everybody, everybody should be vote like should be encouraging something like a Thorchain to succeed, so that we have our own self sovereignty. We don't rely on other people to mitigate our financial transactions. I want my sovereignty. I want my freedom. I want my liberty. Right. And Thorchain is literally providing that for the entire crypto space in a meaningful way. And so. If they get exploited again, which very well could happen, I obviously hope that's not going to happen, but it very well could happen. Even after all the like extreme measures that the team has taken to protect it, it may happen again. But if it does happen again, I am still going to fix it. And I'm still going to go on because we need this in the community. It's not debatable. We need it. And so I will st I'll still be here trying to fix it and make it work. And if somebody else has a different design that's different than ThorChain, that a achieve the same goal that does work, then I will put my weight behind them as well and say, you guys, awesome. Solve this problem that we need because I'm working on it. You're working on it. And maybe we have different approaches and maybe mine will be successful and yours not. Or maybe we'll both be successful. Or we both fail. Who knows? In any case, like I desperately feel like we need this in the community and I'm doing whatever I can 
just to contribute and support that. Yeah, I think you nailed it right there. Like, as far as, you know, getting the point across that this is a purpose driven project, you know, the end game is clear, you know, and I think a lot of developers go into this looking at it in the reverse, like, let's start with this interesting idea and see where it goes. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll do something down the road, you know, and usually, unfortunately, that ends in a way that isn't always um, the best outcome for Liberty, you know, and um, I think what you're saying is really, really key. And part of why I like the project is that the end game is clear. The end game is economic liberty for crypto network participants. Um, KYC laws and regulations, I believe, are immoral. I believe that restrictions that the government places on the way that we can move money, the inability to move it without total surveillance, um, the control over our bank accounts, the control over our, our finances, I believe it's all immoral. I think it's anti-liberty. And what Chad just said really resonates with me because I see the vision. I see that we do need, we have the technology. The technology is there. Now we need to figure out how to adapt that technology to overcome this massive hurdle and create this, this network that fixes it, that gives us another way to achieve liberty with our finances and is uncontrollable by everybody who wants to do the opposite. And the reason that I asked so many questions about the validation network and the decentralization of it and the ability to attack it is because I take that vision very seriously as well. And I yep. know that if that vision is achieved, it will be attacked with ferocity that we might have never seen before in the world. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, so I think that these kind of conversations are critical. And I think the fact that you guys um, and you and, and JP and everybody else I've spoken to about the project have been so candid about it, um, I, I wouldn't have nearly the level of interest that I have in the project if the candor wasn't there. And if, if you guys weren't saying, hey, the attack surface is huge, exploits are not going to shock us if they happen, um, that is so important in the space, you know, and I would caution anybody who listens to this and, and hears Chad say that if you hear him say, you know, there might be more exploits and then you decide, you know, what, I can't support a project that says that that is the wrong approach. Okay. Projects that are not admitting that to you on DeFi are just not being honest with you. Every single project in this space that uses smart contract technology um, is capable of getting hacked, exploited. None of them are 100% hardened, no matter what they say to you. So we should not punish a project for admitting what's true about every single DeFi application, that there is an attack service. It can be attacked. It can be hacked. It can be exploited. Um, that's just the name of the game. So I just wanted to throw that out there because I don't want somebody to hear that and then go the other way. And it's not like, like somebody, I don't think somebody would do that out of malice or, or bad intent. I think people just don't fully understand this new world that we're existing yeah. in, you know? So I, I just wanted to footnote that and make sure yeah, that that was the takeaway. The, the culture of the Thorchain community from the get-go has always been as much radical transparency as reasonably possible. Um, I've always tried to be a straight shooter of things, right? I don't, 
like I never come out and say like, oh, everything is fine. Like you'll never like, I never say like, oh, Rune's going to hit some ridiculously high number tomorrow. Like I never chill in this sense. I never even talk about Rune almost like other than its purpose and from a security perspective. But like I never talk about the Rune price because I'm not here to sell people to buy Rune. I don't care if you buy Rune or not. That's not the point. <laughs> That's not the point of this network. Don't buy it. Fine. I don't give a shit. Buy it. For, uh, sure. Go for it. It doesn't matter. Even like the design of the network was designed so that you don't have to buy Rune. If you want to swap in the network and you know go from Bitcoin to Ethereum, you can do that without buying Rune or having a Thor address. You can provide liquidity into the network with just Bitcoin. That's fine. You can totally do that too. Like nobody's trying to shove Rune like down people's throats in a sense, right? Like right. I don't care whether or not you people buy Rune or not. All I care about is that the 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 vision of the project gets like gets manifested and it provides the service that is desperately needed by the community. The results will be what the results are, and I will always shoot as straight as I reasonably can, which is why I like talking to you, Chris, because you're very much a straight shooter and you, you kind of really ask really good like digging questions, which is like what we need more of in this industry for for sure. Uh, and so I appreciate that about you. And it was one of the reasons why I wanted to come on to your, to your, to your podcast here and do this, but, uh, thank you. We always try to be as, as clear as possible and as open as trans, trans, uh, transparent as possible and be straight about our, our answers to questions and not try to rosy things up and, Oh no, 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 that's, that's not a problem here at all. Look over here. <laughs> we try hard not to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, it's important too, for people who, whether you're new or not to the space to understand that, um, a lot of projects do put their token value first, you know, and a lot of projects are built specifically to achieve a higher token value. We see that all the time. Um, these are projects that are not trying to achieve some noble purpose for Liberty. They're trying to just provide you yield they're potentially ponzi's they're they're just all about making money off the backs of later participants a lot of times so you know i i think and this comes up a lot and we talked we alluded to this a little bit earlier as far as you can have different levels of decentralization in these projects um you can even have projects that are trustless but if you have a team of developers or other participants in the community who um, obfuscate the truth, who deliberately hide things, who are not fully candid about the pitfalls or the dangers or the attack surface of the project, um, you should question the entire validity of the project because that's a representation of the character of the people who wrote the code. And if the people who wrote the code are not honest with you about what they've created and the problems that might exist with it, then you have to start to wonder what their level of skill might be, what their experience in the space might be, especially if they're anonymous, what kind of meticulousness they utilize, how good of a developer they are, basically. Because it, if those things aren't there, the opportunity for not just exploits, but actually hacks, bugs, other things starts to increase. So I have far more faith in a developer that says to me, my code isn't perfect. There is an attack surface. I stay up at night hope, wondering what I might have missed versus somebody who says, you're crazy. This thing isn't getting hacked. 
it's fine. Don't ask about what might be wrong with it because <laughs> look, look, read our audit. We got audited by Peck Shield. So what are you worried about? You should just <laughs> shut up and go away. Like, and you know what? You get that far more often in DeFi than what you're getting from Chad right now. So yeah. it's important to to call out. Um, yeah, even if you were to ask a, a, a security firm like Trail of Bits, for example, um, whether or not there are exploits in a code after they audit it, they'll probably tell you, I don't know, right? They're rationally, right. rational people over there and they're smart individuals. And so just because Trail of Bits has audited the ThorChain code base and says, all right, we found some bugs, none of them were critical, blah, 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 whatever, like, that doesn't mean that it's like, okay, everything's fine. Everything's secure. <laughs> that does not mean that. Well, just, just the fact that you got, the likelihood of that being the case. Yeah. Just the fact that you got a trail of bits audit and not Certic or Peck Shield is a message to me. So yeah. um, let's just, oh, and by well, the way, I don't wanna... we, we were trying to get trail of bits to audit the code for like almost a year, but they just are so backed up because they're such an in-demand and like uh, firm that mm-hmm. it took us up until now to actually get them in the door so we could get them to, to audit the code. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Um, so quickly, I don't want to go too deep into like the exploits technically. Mm-hmm. I mean, but um, I want to just talk quickly about the layman's ex- explanation of what happened with them and then talk about what you guys have done to resolve those particular issues. Because what I want eventually want to talk about is whether trade-offs have been made and whether ThorChain is less... Sure decentralized now than it was before, you know, and sort of just have that conversation. So what, can you explain what the exploits, like what happened with them, how they happened? Yeah, sure, sure. So uh, effectively what happened was, and I'm going to keep this high level so it doesn't get too in the weeds, Mm -hmm. but somebody would send in an asset, like Ethereum, for example. It's all, it's all these attacks happen on the Ethereum network because Ethereum has what's called ACE, which is arbitrary code execution. So like, because you have these smart contracts that can like do all these weird and wacky things, manipulate transactions and do these kind of nutty things, people had figured a way to manipulate a transaction to convince the network that it received like 20 ETH or something like this. And in reality, it received nothing. And so the people are, so somebody basically sent, like say this is the ThorChain network and this is their wallet. And this is like a, a malicious smart contract in between. They send in 20 ETH to their contract and then they forward that transaction to ThorChain, but the ETH gets like sent back to them. So the network receives on this side saying, oh, I got a transaction on Ethereum where the guy sent me, you know, 20 ETH. Let's go ahead and do the swap and give them 20 ETH worth of, you know, uh, USDC or like whatever the asset they requested are. Um, and so in each of these, uh, those exploits, it was just a different way to convince the network that it received assets that it didn't actually receive, making the network effectively insolvent, right? That doesn't have as much funds in it that it thinks it should have, right? Okay. So So the the code worked as intended. And I think it's important to also explain exploit versus hack. This was not a bug per se. This wasn't poorly written code. It wasn't a syntax error. Code worked as intended, but you were unable to foresee this particular usage of the code, and that particular usage of the code ended up um, being a you know a way for somebody to drain funds that they didn't deserve, it, they didn't the earn. The code trusted that this transaction was legitimate from Ethereum, and the reality was it was not legitimate, right? And so the, the network made assumptions about the relationship between what we call bifrost, which is the connection between ThorChain and the other chains, 
and Ethereum and said, okay, thanks for letting me know that I got this asset. And then reality is it didn't get anything at all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that let was- Let me ask you a question about that. Because I'm always curious, and maybe you have some insight into um, how does someone get to the point, to the level of familiarity with the code and with the project and with the ecosystem to be able to uncover something like this you know, it seems like this is the type of, of behavior in this ecosystem that would be so nuanced. Even the people who wrote the code couldn't foresee it. Um, how could somebody from the outside uh, be able to study this in a way that they can uncover? I mean, does it have to be just a genius level type prodigy no, out doesn't. there? Okay. It doesn't have so to be. How did so, they get there? So imagine you had a house right? A really big, complex house, but all these you know, things to it. And then somebody comes by and says, I want to break into that house. And they, they just notice that there's like a window over there. So they go over and they inspect that window and like, okay, it's the window's made out of this material. Okay. And it moves upward and down. It doesn't go outward this way. Okay. And they'll, okay. It's the glass is hardened glass or the glass is like, you know, and so they analyze this little piece of the house and they say, you know, I think I can open up this window if I do this thing, whatever this thing might be, right? Hit it with a rock. I don't know. It's kind of a bad example. but And so you don't need to like understand the complexities of the entire house just to figure out how to open up that, that window in a sense, right? Okay. And so my assumption is whoever are these uh, uh, individuals who exploit their work weren't studying the code for like six months or something like this. My assumption is that they were Solidity people who, uh, you know, knew how to manipulate Solidity smart contracts. And then they just looked at the code path that Solidity takes within Bifrost, which is not that much code. It's only like maybe like a thousand lines of code, you know, or so, maybe 2000 or something like this. And and they just kind of like, oh, okay, I can, you know, I can uh, confuse Bifrost by giving manipulating the smart contract transaction over here by doing this thing and that thing and whatever it might be. So you don't need to be a genius. You don't need to be, I mean, maybe these individuals are geniuses. Like I honestly don't know who they are or, or so I can't make any determinations about who, who they are, but like, so maybe they are, maybe they're not, but you don't, it doesn't require somebody to be a genius to find, you know, a crack in a window, right? Versus So it's the, like trial and error in a way, right? So do you, like, do you see, can you visualize on, on chain um, exploit attempts happening on a regular basis? Like people trying stuff and seeing it fail. Are you able to learn anything from those attempts? Because you think yes. maybe people see weaknesses and if they're all targeting one spot, is that something you see yeah, as a dev? So if we see a transaction that is, you know, meant to manipulate um, something, right? And it's not successful, then we don't need to actually do anything because it worked. Like the, the security mechanism in the network did what it's supposed to do. The guy made this transaction attempt it didn't actually work the way they thought it was going to work and everything is fine. Right. Um, and one of these exploits, there was a smart contract that was deployed using tornado cash. And the guy made a couple of transactions before that, uh, that in, co- in the context uh, that didn't make any sense. Like they were like, he was just sending weird memos into the network and it did like, you know, it was fine. Like there's no problems. And the community actually saw the smart contract was deployed and like, and, and no, we observed it, but we were like, we don't know what this is doing. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know. And if we shut things down now, like, what does that mean? Like every time somebody deploys a smart contract via tornado cash, like 
shut the network down. Like we wouldn't have any information to go on because what that person was transacting before had nothing to do with what the transaction was that actually, you know, exploited funds in the end. So, um, so everybody was kind of just watching this, this particular smart contract and, you know, within uh, a couple of seconds, like $8 million was just like pulled out. Right. It was just very, very fast. And that's partially why we made some of the changes we made is to, to help in these particular scenarios. But, um, yeah, if somebody makes a transaction and is not successful, then everything's fine. You don't, make, you don't need to make any code changes per se. You can look at it closer to see if there's another way they can do something similar to what they were doing, but didn't quite work. Um, but ones that are actually successful, then, then then you obviously have to make some changes and patch some issue or bug or code or whatever. Right. <clears throat> so um, on that first exploit, uh, 4200 ETH was siphoned out of the system um yep. which basically um broke the, the action well, was i'm looking at your your blog okay. um or or uh sorry thorchain's blog uh the postmortem so 4200 eth it says impact 8 million i don't know what the value of eth was at that time but it was 4200 ETH. way more now i guess but um it's more like 12 or 13 million at this point yeah so um then the network was halted Right after that. So let me ask you about that fast, because obviously this is a big question for people who, who want to say Thorchain is decentralized. Um, How did the halt happen? How did the validators, because it had to happen from the validators, right? They're the only ones that can halt the network, right? Mm -hmm. So do the validators all just hang out in the chat? Because they're anonymous. You don't know how to contact them. Do they just get the message through the Discord channel or something? They're like, you know, are you guys like validators? Shut it down. And then you're just hoping they're in the chat and then they eventually do shut it down? Yeah. I mean, the fact of what it is, um, there are just communication channels, like public communication channels, that, like Telegram, for example. And there's a specific channel in, uh, in our Discord where the team can broadcast information to specifically to the, to the, thor- the, the, the operators, the validators of the network. Um, and you just hope that they're online and they read it and they, you know, and they make the decision for themselves, given the information, given that, like, does it make sense to do this action of like holding the network, for example, uh, in this case, it was pretty obvious that was the right thing to do. Network was exploited. Funds are you know at risk. Let's shut it down before things get even worse to where they were before. Right. Um, so. There is a, uh, some channels that that, uh, that the, the team uses to to be able to communicate with the validators, but it's also like a new thing that that's recently been developed as part of this uh, rebuilding, where validators can actually communicate into Discord in only a public way using a relayer, where they sign um, a message with their private key, and that it gets broadcast to a, a server, and then that thing gets broadcast into a chatbot into Discord. And so, like, mm. you can have authenticated conversations within our Discord now that allows them to have conversation between validators if they want to, but only in a public fashion. You can't actually do, like, a private DM or, or, or anything like this. Wow, that's interesting. I haven't heard of that before. That's cool. Yeah, it's relatively recent, and, and, the, and the community still needs to get used to using it and all this kind of thing. Um, but it's a way for people to talk without revealing their identity and without mm-hmm. being able to communicate in a secure or private way. Everything has to be um, public. Okay. Was there any pushback from any of the validators on, on halting the network? 
I mean, there's conversations in the Discord that people have, and you don't know who anybody is. You don't know if this person talking is a validator or is not a validator, right? Everybody just yeah. has conversations. Um, and so, but there was no pushback at all that I can remember of. of <laughs> there was pushback to halt the network before when we noticed that smart contract that was, you know, sitting there that looked a little suspicious, but we weren't sure what's going to happen. There was pushback in the community of like whether or not we should or should not, and and I think the the vast majority of our voices, whether they're validators or not validators, kind of said, well, there's, nothing, there's no action items here. There's nothing we can actually do about it until we actually see something that happens to know what the exploit attempt might be, and that was kind of pushed back in that particular instance. But after you know funds were lost, it was pretty fast. I think with, uh, within like 15 minutes or 20 minutes, something like this, um, the network was halted. Okay. And when the network gets halted, um, obviously nothing can happen. No trades can happen. No swaps can happen, but also nobody can withdraw liquidity. Mm-hmm. Uh, liquidity is trapped in the halted nodes. Nobody mm-hmm. can move their rune. You know, obviously you can't sell it. Um, you can't drop swap it. Um, so <clears throat> in those cases, users have no recourse. Users don't like if, if a layer two on Ethereum, a proper layer two gets halted, users always have a force withdrawal option, right? They can always go in and, and do something to get their money back. But on a network like ThorChain, that's not really an option, right? Sure, of course. Okay, so um, that that's a good distinction to draw between a layer two and, and ThorChain. Um, okay, so that happened. Then uh, not that's too like long that. after. That's like on purpose because funds are not safe. Right. <laughs> yeah. you want to do is leave everything up and, and running and like, you know, all the funds are gone, like hundreds of millions of dollars. Like you don't want to get into that scenario. Well, so, right. Right. So the, um, the, the, the termination was made of the, it's more, it's more secure to hold things. Now let us review audit, fix bugs, blah, 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 all these things. And then once we're back online again, and this is what we've been seeing over the last you know week or two of, of the network's in its process of restarting, um, people can access their liquidity again. They can withdraw their liquidity if they want to, but very little, very few people are actually withdrawing the liquidity now that the network still is uh, relaunched. Yeah, I just think it's so interesting to think about. Like, if you did have lower requirements for validators, and you had two hundred validators at the time of the exploit, um, you probably would have had a much harder time halting it or communicating with everybody to get it halted in 15 minutes, right? So well, you, is, you still need like a minimum of one third, effectively one third plus one actually, to right. to halt their n- nodes in order to halt the network itself. And so if you have 200, then you need like one third plus one of 200. How many of those people are online? How many of those people are, you know, you know are, are, are not sleeping or whatever is depending upon the allocation of individuals across the planet, right? Yeah. Um, I don't think it would be that much slower, to be honest with you, uh, if we had 200 versus 38, which we have now. I think that the result would have been more or less the same, to be honest. Um, so so the, the information came from the ThorChain core dev team to the validators. Validators trusted what they were hearing from the core devs and but that's true in this case, on... but like that's actually not a requirement. People are talking in the Discord, right? Yeah. And if yeah. anybody, people are just communicating with each other in the in the public Discord. So people are talking about, oh, we've been hacked. There's you know eight million dollars has been withdrawn. Blah blah blah. People can halt their notes then, 
at mm-hmm. that point. They don't doesn't require you know a different channel to broadcast. Well, it's, it's like a that's more like a recommendation. That's more accurate way to describe okay. it. This is what's recommended based upon what the information that we see, right? As a team, right? As a core devs, um, right? But the the team the validators can are can can chat amongst themselves within Discord, and you don't know who's a validator and who's not a validator. But people can say, I think we should shut down the chain because of X, Y, and Z. And if you convince enough validators who are sitting in that Discord channel, you know, reading all the messaging, then that will exactly what's, what's going to happen. Gotcha. Okay, so um, exploit happened. You guys worked out some sort of a fix, relaunched the network. Um, somehow, we don't have to go into detail about like how the liquidity evened out, unless you think it's important right now. But what I wanted to get to was what your postmortem says that the upgrade process quote was not adequate not adequately wargamed um so the network relaunched with an upgrade that the postmortem states was not properly vetted um how does that happen like is there because you seem like a very conscientious guy developer um is there pressure to just push a fix without getting it properly getting to a proper comfort level? Or did you think when it's pushed, you're just like, this is as good as it's ever going to get. Let's just go for it and see what happens. Because what ended up happening was it wasn't good, right? It didn't fix everything. And then there was another exploit. Yeah. Well, the fix was successful in fixing what it's designed to fix, but there were other things to be patched as well, which weren't aware of at that time. And, And the argument is, well, maybe we should have spent more time and, and to look for, you know, similar attack vectors, blah, 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 and all these things. And, and, and maybe that's what the team should have done. Right. Um, uh-huh. I think that's effective. What happened once we hit like that, I think that second or third or the number was uh, exploits like, okay, now there's, this, we, <laughs> we get within a week period, we get hit like twice, you know what I mean? And so like, let's, let's like, you know, shut things down and just be much more methodical. And the community very much pushed hard uh, for this idea of like, let's slow it down. Let's bring it to a halt. Let's, you know, take our time to do it right. And, you know, all these things. And that's definitely what the, what the community was pushing for. And the, and therefore the team kind of followed suit with what the community wanted in that sense. And, and I agree with them. I agree with what, what, what they were pushing for. It made sense at that point. And uh, okay. so it was halted. And then a whole host of changes were made and, and, and steps were taken to, to mitigate future issues for sure. The, the postmortem is really interesting. Um, by the way, it's on medium.com slash Thorchain. You can read all this stuff uh, because it goes on to say that um, as this is all happening and there's confusion a little bit about um, the network being halted and stuff like that, that... Um, uh, what's a Mimir admin? Is that somebody in the Discord that has some duty? Because um, it says that the Mimir admin um, kind of got confused and got people to start trading again before the system was ready, apparently, uh, for it. And people ended up getting some some discounted ETH as a result of the network went insolvent again. Yeah, so a Mimir admin is something that was added to the network as uh, like the training wheels, right? The, even the term Mimir was taken from Norse mythology, where at the end of the story of Mimir, the head gets gets knocked off. So it's designed to give, uh, there are two Mimir admin uh, um, keys that are held by individuals. 
And uh, that gives them the ability to, um, you know, halt trading, for example, right? Or, uh, you know, hold a specific chain. They can't withdraw liquidity or anything like this. Like you don't have access to like, you know, anything in that sense, but it's just there as, as a, a very quick way to be able to, to like shut things down if there's an absolute need to, uh, for very quick reactions. That was there as part of like the chaos net, you know, like time frame, And that's designed to be, uh, even a, a, a mere command to kill itself called release the Kraken where like it just kill, like it just Mimir just severs its own head and it has no ability or functionality to change anything in the network at all. And so there was a mistake made by uh, an individual where um, uh, trading was re-enabled when uh, it should not have been. And it basically leaked out like another like one point something million dollars worth of Ethereum, which is just a mistake an individual made. Um, and yeah, that was just a, a mistake. So like, as you're saying that, I'm sure you realize how, centralized that sounds right it's like oh, yeah. one in one individual is able is, to right? so say something in the discord and launch an entire network of validators or enable trading or however that works and then money is lost uh from liquidity so uh, uh, first of all on that like is that accurate i know yeah, i'm simplifying it, it that, is, I'm sorry, that is 100 accurate right okay so Thorchain needs to get from, you know, the start of the inception to what we want to see in the long term, right? And it can't do that from day one as centralized. No, <laughs> it does not work that way. Every project needs to start centralized to some degree. And how much the degree that is, is relative to the attributes and the, and the design decisions of that particular project. In Thorchain's case, uh, the team saw it be... Uh, needed to have um, an, an, an admin key to be able to like slow churning, for example, or halt trading, for example, or uh, maybe disable increment loss protection if there's some sort of, you know, exploit, you know, um, so that, you know, you can stop massive funds. Like, I mean, think about like comp, right? Like comp made a code change and it's just like set there for a week, right? And there's nothing anybody can do about it. And just like $80 million can just like over that week time frame just like be ex exited in the system. And so Thorchain just said, like, well, and while we're still getting our feet wet and while we're still kind of hardening, maturing the network over the like the beginning, let's create some admin keys to be able to put training wheels on the network in the beginning. And then once we get to a certain level of maturity, you know, Mamir's dead and, and, you know, cuts his head off, metaphorically speaking, and we continue on. I think the mentality now, at least for some people, is that Mamir won't like die in a sense, but instead be transitioned from being specific uh, private keys to being controlled by the network itself. So you need to get a two thirds consensus of the validators to say, we need to make this change, right? So that we can have a more fast response to some sort of uh, exploit or problem or bug or, okay, we see something that, you know, as possible that, you know, funds could be lost. Let's pause these things right now. Let's fix the bug and then unpause and continue on. That's the most, okay. um, rational the most secure the most responsible way that i can think about launching something like a thorchain if you didn't have a mirror you just like you're just throwing the dice at that point <laughs> like you're literally just like you know put everything in the wind and then hopefully it's fine if it's not you know like tens of millions if not hundreds of millions of money will be out the door i don't think that's the right way of going at this i think projects should start centralized i think you have to start centralized as long as you have a clear path to decentralization and you make it very clear of how you get there and that makes complete economic sense and all these things, that's the most important thing. So Thorchain will definitely start centralized in a sense, 
and then move decentralized over time, right? But that's just the choice that's made. Like other projects decided to like launch their, their network and have all the team run all the nodes, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not going to name that specific project, but like they decided to do that, right? Thorchain decided to launch a project where the team doesn't have the nodes, right? That's one of the things we were very much uncompromising is should the team be able to collude or operate or do something to withdraw liquidity and, and take people's funds? No. <laughs> the answer to that question right. is no. So as long yeah. as these keys don't allow you to do something like, hey, I can go and take your money, then I'm okay with that in the beginning. But the long-term angle is that's just a temporary training wheels thing until we get the network gets to a certain level of security, reliability, and hardening before you can take those those um, those functionality away. I do. I just want to mention one thing um, about the idea of like progressive decentralization, like starting centralized and moving towards decentralization. And I think that it, it can work for a project like Thorchain where the goal is not to create a profitable company with um, an exit strategy for investors, I think it makes sense. When you are dealing with other DeFi projects that do have those goals, their goals are not necessarily economic liberty. They're not necessarily even decentralization in the long, in the long, by our standards in the long run. Their goals are defined by their corporate goals, and their corporate goals are to generate profit, generate return, sustain their business, sustain their employees and their marketing and everything. Um, I think that it, we have not seen a lot of instances, if any, where projects have fulfilled their roadmap to decentralization and where they change it later when they realize, you know what, we have achieved a lot with this admin key, why should we burn it? People don't seem to care. Like we're 10 billion, 20 billion, you know, it's like, let's just keep it, you know? Um, so I hear I what you're to, saying, but I, <laughs> I really don't yeah, yeah, it. yeah. I mean, and honestly, so, the, um, the network can, can just decide to remove it if they wanted to, right? They could just do a code change that removes me, which would be literally a one line change. And mm-hmm. you can have the network come together and say, we just don't like the idea of Mimir let's just go ahead and remove it. And they can do that if they chose to. That's perfectly fine. So Mimir can do, um, just run down what it can do exactly. Yeah. So uh, one thing it can do is like a trading, hold trading, uh, holding a particular chain, like Ethereum, like say there's some sort of exploit in Ethereum, we can hold just Ethereum and let the other chains carry on. Um, it can change the permanent loss protection. Um, what else can it do? It can uh, delay churning of the network when the network like, pulls in new validators and old validators get pushed out. Uh, I think it can change how frequently like pools get cycled into the network, like new assets get cycled in to create new pools. Can it um, help the network? Yes, it can help the network if it, if it sees fit. If it, if it wants to, it can halt all the chains and effectively halt the network. Um, it can halt uh, like rune upgrades if, it, if there's some sort of like infinite mint bug where people can mint infinite rune or something like this. It can do that. Why wasn't it used uh, after the first exploit? Um, like, why did you go to the validators and ask them to, to halt? Why didn't you just use Mimir? I think it's, well, at that time, there was no ability to, to for the Mimir to be able to halt uh, the network as a whole. It had, it had the ability to halt trading, right? And so okay. the, the exploit had an ability to 
you didn't need to trade to extrapolate funds from the network. You could just send in 20 fake ETH with some sort of weird bullshit memo of, of intent that made no sense, which would trigger the network to refund the 20 ETH back to that person. So they'd send in fake ETH and get back real ETH without even doing a trade, right? And so you needed the network to come in and say, oh, we, we need to not even transact, you know, even read Ethereum transactions, just like the whole thing needs to be shut down effectively. And so since then, I think the team had said, okay, let's let's add uh, a few abilities for Mir to be able to hold in an individual chain, just in case like if um, there's another Ethereum-based thing, uh, we can hold Ethereum, but not hold, you know, Bitcoin and Litecoin and have a more granular approach of like being able to not disrupt the entire network and just disrupt the network, that, the part of the network that's being exploited, right? Um, okay. So at that time, that ability to hold the entire chain wasn't available to Mir. <clears throat> But that has since changed and allowed the, the network to, the Mimir to, to do that in the last couple of months. And Mimir is a multi-sig, basically? No, Mimir is not a multi-sig. It's just two individual keys. Who holds the keys? That is not known. Two anonymous individuals who may or may not be on the team can pause the entire network permanently? Two individuals who are may or may not, yeah, I, the the identity of those individuals will always be uh, not known. If they halt the network, can is there any way to reactivate it without them? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, Mimir doesn't actually have the ability to make anything permanent. It just it can only make a, a temporary change at best. And if 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 you if you had a Mimir that went like you know sideways and just decided to like be malicious, which wouldn't make any sense in this context, right? But um, you can always make code changes to either remove that Mimir private key from the entire system and, and, and make the change, like through code changes, like it's perfectly fine. There's no permanent um, effects. So this giving the Mimir more power was like an outcome after the, the exploits because you wanted to make sure if there was another exploit, you could move quicker and do yeah, things I faster. Think, I think the problem with Mimir in the beginning was that that the design of it wasn't aggressive enough to be able to be powerful enough to to def, defend the network from such exploits, and so there was a decision made by the community to make that uh, to make that person or those people uh, slightly more powerful in terms of what they're capable of doing, but they still don't have the any ability to make any permanent changes or withdraw assets or manipulate you know um, people's shares of the pools or anything remotely actually has any economic value whatsoever. It's only there just to, to, to respond to some sort of massive exploit or bug or something like this to, to protect the, the liquidity and the, and, the, and the pools of the network. Well, what, what's the Mimir, the two unknown Mimir uh, key holder, if you want to call them that um, participants, like what's their financial incentive or other incentive to, to act rationally? Well, uh, if we don't know who not, they are, uh, what they do, like they could be, you know, my grandma, like, I don't know, like who, <laughs> what's, what's you, to stop. You know, like, first. One of the Mimir admins is, is Chris Black's mother, grandma. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would suck cause she's dead, but you know, it's oh, like, uh, I mean, Hey, you know what, if, 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 uh, you want to, it might be better to have dead people as Mimir. Um, so, no, but, but I'm asking because, okay, look. If you can halt the network, even if it's, I don't know how long they can do it for, you can do stuff. 
you know, you could halt the network. You could have a bag load of rune. You could dump the rune. Nobody else can um, be involved. You could you could tank the network. Well, we wouldn't you be could, able to, to dump the rune any better than anybody else in the world, right? Um, I guess it depends if it's on chain or on Binance or something, right? But um, th- there's attacks that could happen if they didn't act rationally. Can you admit that? Um, no, I wouldn't admit that. Like, <laughs> There's nothing, there's nothing that the Mimir no can do. There's no attack factor that they have that could actually cause material damage to the network. So if they halt they the network, do, huh? If they yeah, halt the they, network, they can't actually halt the network. If if you it's such a saying in your scenario where Mimir is now you know has flipped from being you know highly aligned to the project to all of a sudden not how do we know they're highly aligned though if we don't know who they are or what they do if they're with the team if they're a community member be given out to a random individual on the street right (laughs) who gave out the who who gave out the key who chose them that was part of the a call made by the team okay i see i understand what i understand what's happening here um but i also want to just draw attention to the fact that there is some blind trust that uh, somebody on the well, outside so, who just wants like to said, be a liquidity like, provider. Obviously those mm-hmm. people are highly aligned to the project. They're not going to like, you know, just have a field day and destroy everything because, you know, they've been aligned with the project since day one. They're obviously big fans. They're like probably heavily inve- invested into the, into the project in one form or another. And that they have no ability to actually cause any rational, reasonable harm to the network other than just being annoying. Well, right? they could lock up your liquidity. No, they couldn't though. Like they, they can lock it up for a short period of time. Yes. But then, you know, everything carries on. Like they have no ability to actually like decide that everybody, nobody gets their money anymore. That, that's, that's not the case. Right. Okay. If that were to happen, the network could just make a code change and remove that, those keys and then set the setting back and everything carries on just fine. Like, like nothing ever happened. Right. Nobody is in any risk of losing money. That, Mamir person has no ability to figure a way to profit from having a like. There's no reasonable way that you could profit, you know, right, from having a Mamir uh, uh, key. Like, and those people would not want to do that in a sense because it actually goes against, you know, they're obviously highly aligned to the project as well. So, uh, it's it's not so something you I'm know who they are about in the long term, especially because the mirrors are are going away as long as the network when the network gets to a point of maturity. Okay, but it sounds like you know who they are. I don't. I'm not saying. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just saying they're anonymous individuals. You're, that you're are being. In the world. Uh, you're being sneaky about it, which is unlike the rest of our conversation. I just want to say it's like you know you you were very candid, transparent, but on this one issue, it's hey, like, I'm like you, man. Hey, I, I know have... something you don't know, and I'm just going to be coy about it, and I'm not going to say I, anything. All I'm, saying, all I'm saying is I'm like you, man. I don't even have any crypto. <laughs> well, um, okay. So I, I need to do, I'm going to do, I learned about the Mimir thing on this, on this chat. So I need to do more research on it because it is still sort of a sticking in the back of my head here. Um, sure. But okay. So you mentioned that it was, and, I, and we'll wrap this up soon because I've been torturing you for almost two hours. Um, you mentioned that this was changed after the exploits. There were two exploits um, as a way to sort of, you know, create a better, response to a future exploit, which I'm sure a lot of people will appreciate. Were there other things that were done that might have, um, other responses to the exploits that might have reduced 
decentralization in any way or impacted um, things in, in a way that might have sort of centralized it slightly more? Or was this basically- In, in terms it? of the changes that were made? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so one of the changes that was, what, what was made um, in regards to this is that uh, individual nodes have the ability to hold the network for one hour and every once every like basically every turn every three days or so um and so if an individual node sees a reason or cause that that the network should be healthy because of an exploit or whatever it allows the network to respond much faster to a scenario where you know maybe funds are at risk or something like this uh, they don't have the ability to like take any funds they don't have the ability to you know do anything else other than just being um like a, a, a an annoyance into the network itself and so even if one node says, uh, I'm going to halt the network for the next hour, which is all they have the ability to do, the next node can say, okay, I'm going to go ahead and resume it and like go against that in other individuals. So um, you'd have to get uh, a lot of people to agree to have that stand, you know, and say, we agree with the idea of halting the network for the next hour. And another node can come by and say, let's expand that another hour. So we'll just do a two hours like thing here. And another node can come over and say, oh, let's just do three nodes. And another node can say, I don't agree. Let's take back an hour, right? And so they can basically have this like kind of a tug of war with holding the network or not holding the network. But the net, the values themselves will come to the determination of how to deal with that uh, at, as, and, and the particular situations that we might be in in the future. Okay. So one node, whether there's 38 nodes or 500 nodes, one node can halt the network for an hour. Yeah, they have an ability to do that once every turn. And so they can't just like just okay. keep on doing it. You can only use it once. Right. And if, if they if, if the network finds that an individual is being malicious in some way, then the network can just ban that individual and say, this guy's being a dick. <laughs> Let's go ahead okay. and get a two-thirds consensus that this person's being a dick and just ban that individual. I really don't think that's going to happen. I mean, obviously, all these validators have you know, at least 300,000 rune or, or more, right? And then they're investing mm -hmm. to the network. So they're not going to just arbitrarily just for shits and giggles, you know, <laughs> unless they feel there's an actual good reason to that there's some sort of exploit in the network. And that could even happen like, well, there's something really weird happening. Let's hold it for an hour. And then we look at it as a, as a community over the next like five or 10 minutes and realize, okay, it's fine. It's actually just a thing, it's not a big deal. And then somebody else can just say, okay, let's go ahead and resume it now. Like it's, it can be that quick, you know, in some scenarios. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, uh, it is something to think about though, because when you say halt the network, you're saying you cannot, you cannot get access to your money. If you're a liquidity provider, your money is yeah, if locked. The, if the network has good reason to think that the, your money is not safe, the, the, the priority is just to, to, to keep those assets safe over you having access to them. Yeah. The question is, are there other reasons other than that, that a validator might want to lock up your money uh, to protect the value of Rune, whatever, um, you know, that's the kind of stuff adversarial thinkers would start to think about in that kind of situation, which I need to now yeah, digest. I mean, and maybe we should have a follow-up chat and we, you know, sort of address some of this. Certainly can. We, we can definitely have a follow-up chat. It does uh, sound I like- that's, that's the intention of the features is, is, to, is to, when there's a real reason to- to, you know, that the network's under, you know, under attack of some form. Like the network needed, needs to take a more defensive approach. I think that's one of the, the design flaws I think made in the earlier days was we didn't take a defensive enough approach to protect these assets, right? And I think what we're learning as part of the last couple of months is we need to take a more defensive approach and not have another, you know, $8 million go out the door or whatever this is, right? And so there are a bunch of changes that were made, right? 
like solvency checks on every block, right? So if somebody does put in fake ETH, like the network would halt itself because it didn't get the ETH that it needed and it sees something is askew and it just halts itself autonomously, right? We have delayed outbound transactions. So if you swap a massive quantity of liquidity to the network and like try to extract a lot of funds, it will delay those outbound transactions up to an hour, right? That gives the community time to like, okay, there's some weird you know, things happening here. Is this legitimate? Is it not legitimate? And if it's some sort of exploit, the community can say, let's halt the network for an hour or two hours, whatever, fix the bug, fix the issue, you know, not have the funds leave the network entirely at all, and then be able to, you know, uh, put them back into the pools or whatever it is, like, so it doesn't, it doesn't actually get extracted, you know, right. these are just decisions made by the community and by the team as well, to make a much more defensive approach, so that liquidity of people's funds are much more hardened and much more secure. It mm -hmm. comes at a cost to your point about what are the uh, you know uh, malicious aspects that a node could do to like whatever? But after reasoned uh, uh, th thinking and caution, uh, I think the the choices to opt for a more secure system than some sort of like grievance or, or annoying thing that an, an individual validator may or may not do in the future. And if we find that there's some sort of issue with that you know, the network will be like, can adjust as it needs to. But even if there was some sort of malicious individual who's halting the network and for some personal reason of whatever, the network can just unhalt it just a second later. <laughs> like it's right. it has almost no effect to, to the liquidity, to the pools, to the safety of the network, to the reliability of the network, because those can always be done by the other people. Understood. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, Something I'm going to keep an eye on, though, is it's it's always interesting to me to see when there's a trade-off made of um, basically decentralization in exchange for security, um, even if it's relatively small. You know, it's like you know, it's not that far off from what we see in everyday life these days, right? Where you know, we're we're give we're, there's trade-offs everywhere. We're we're sacrificing liberty for security. Um, so it's, it must be tricky as a developer to try to figure out what the sweet spot is. So um, I can respect the difficulty in making those decisions, but also as a user, I want to keep an eye on it and make sure that it doesn't yeah. go too far down that road, you know, because I wouldn't feel comfortable potentially at some point Absolutely. liquidity on the network. Every one of these changes made to the network over the last couple of months was adopted by the validators, meaning that they right. all agreed. Um, and what they didn't agree, then it wouldn't be a validator anymore. They would just leave the system. And They've all effectively agreed by adopting these code changes and saying that, that let's opt for a more secure stance. We can change things in the future if we find that things are, are, are sufficiently hardened and there's, you know, it's been operating cleanly for you know months or years or whatever the number is, and then say we don't need these security measures anymore. And a code change we made to be undo, to undo those changes, and that's perfectly fine for a future community right. to, to determine. But for right now, what's most important for the community is to make sure that this network is hardened and that it's securing those assets so they have trust that they if they put their money into the system that it's not going to just leave tomorrow because of some sort of major exploit in the system. All right. Well, hey, listen, I want to thank you like a ton for having this chat. I think it was really valuable for people who are familiar with the project probably, but also definitely for people who aren't familiar with it. And it gives a good, I think this, this conversation is a great benchmark for the level of transparency that every DeFi project should be at. Um, nobody should be afraid to admit that there could be problems, that there could be exploits, that maybe it's not perfect. 
um, maybe they haven't figured out answers to every single potential problem. And the fact that you're willing to be open about that kind of stuff is, is really telling about, about you and about the project. So, um, thank you for that. And, um, yeah, I'll just leave it with, I I still think Thorchain is a great project. I think that, uh, it's, there's a lot of risk involved still, but, um, it's definitely something you should poke around in and try to learn about and don't be intimidated by it. If you're not a developer, um, try to listen to this read the blog i'll put a link to the blog in the show notes because that thorchain has a good blog we post a lot of updates there and um i'll leave it there so thanks again chad for joining and i hope we get to have another chat sometime it was really good yeah i'd love to come back